Thank you very much, Anita. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for grace. As John Newton wrote in his song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As we understand Newton's life, he was a wretch. He was sinful. But that's true of all, true of, all of us. We need your undeserved favor. And you express that in Christ. We know that the cross means there's a level ground. We all come humbly in repentance and come to faith in Christ. As we reflect on Christ this morning, reflect on the fact that in his resurrection we have so much. Minister to us, encourage us so that we may be faithful and love you well for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. What is one major difference between Muhammad, the founder of Islam, Ellen White, founder of Seventh-day Adventist, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, Mary Baker Eddy, Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, and Jesus Christ. They all died. What single event sets Christianity apart from religions of the world? Christ. The resurrection is a vital event in history. We will look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a few moments. In the church at Corinth to whom 1 Corinthians 15 was written, there was individuals who were claiming that the dead would not be raised in the future. Paul writes to these saints, in essence, to kind of shake them up, to bring them back to their senses. And he does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with a number of paragraphs, but we'll focus on two or three in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And keep in mind that the church in Corinth was young. Corinth was a city known to be immoral and very ungodly. The saints in Corinth faced many struggles. There were divisions in the church. They were worldly. There was immorality in the church. There were lawsuits. They had questions concerning marriage, food sacrifice to idols, worship, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. And Paul writes to them, confronting them at points in time, answering their questions. And even though he is writing to those young in Christ... He's writing to those with all kinds of trials and struggles. He still thanks God for them. He calls them saints and thankful for God's work of grace in their life. And in the first, or in the section of 
First Corinthians that we are discussing, Paul is offering arguments concerning the resurrection of Christ. In First Corinthians chapter 15, we find that Paul talks about the gospel. Verses 12 through 19, he talks about the fact that there are consequences of no resurrection. In 20 through 28, he clearly states that Christ came from the dead. In 29 through 34, the consequences of no resurrection, he gives an exhortation. He talks about the resurrection body. And then he talks about the resurrection of believers in 50 through 58. Let's read together verses 12 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he would raise Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who do, or those who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that. Brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. 
if we're to interpret Scripture correctly, it is essential that we see the structure that is taking place. In verses 12 through 19, after clearly stating Christ came from the dead, obviously if he came from the dead, he died. He talks about the consequences of no resurrection. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Then he goes on to give consequences if Christ had not come from the dead. Then in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then in verse 29, now, if there's no resurrection, he's coming and relating to the church in Corinth, clearly stating that Christ came from the dead. Christ was seen by the 11. Christ was seen by others, by over 500 witnesses. But if Christ didn't come from the dead, what are the consequences? So apparently there were some individuals in Corinth who were saying Christ didn't bodily come from the dead. And I emphasize that when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ. He didn't merely raise in spirit form or some other form. He bodily came from the dead. And I emphasize that very strongly. And in verses 12 through 19, he says, the consequences of no resurrection means that Christ has not come from the dead. But if we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Corinthians, if you say there's no bodily resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And in light of that, What does he say? And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. The resurrection. There's a vain, empty faith. So Alan and his family go to Red's to pick up some pizza that they ordered, and they ordered two boxes of pizza. And they pick up the boxes, and they bring them out, and they feel like, you know, there's pizza in there. They weigh the right amount. And they bring them home, and they're sitting down just dying to eat this pizza. And they open the first box, and they see two pieces of cardboard. No pizza. They open the second box expecting pizza. What do they see? Enough weight in there to think it's a pizza, but it's empty. A vain, empty faith. If Christ didn't come from the dead, there's no bodily resurrection of the dead. There's no bodily resurrection of Christ, and your faith is vain. It is empty. He goes on. 
More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God. For we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. No resurrection of Christ? No bodily resurrection of people? And we're false witnesses. In verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. No resurrection of the dead means no resurrection of Christ. That's the Corinthians, you're still in your sins. That's those of us here at Roaring Brook, you're still in your sins. Still under God's condemnation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That wouldn't be true, as we read earlier this morning. In verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep, and when fallen asleep there, he's talking about physical death. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And the tense of the verb here, are lost, is in the tense that indicates that they perished at once. The dead Corinthians had already perished. There's no resurrection. They already perished. In verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. There's a guy I talked to a number of years ago. He was in his early 30s at the time. And he was talking about the fact that he planned to retire early. And he had it all figured out. You know, he's going to work at this job. He's going to be able to lay aside this much money. And he turns 55 and he retires. And the next morning he dies of a heart attack. That person is to be pitied. Living for retirement, planning for retirement, putting all his eggs in the basket of retirement, and he dies the day after he retires. That's what Paul is saying here. If in this life we have hope in Christ, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied than all men. We have hope in Christ now. We have hope in Christ in the future. It's not one or the other. It's both. But he says, if you only have hope in life or in this life, you're to be pitied. There's no future life. You're to be pitied. Think about the fact that Paul has clearly stated in verses 1 through 11, Christ died. He was buried. He arose from the dead. He was seen by over 500 But if you say there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't come from the dead. And all the items that we listed are true. But notice what he says in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He paints a picture. Here's what's true if Christ didn't come from the dead. Here's what's true 
if the dead don't rise. But Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those to follow. Now, when Paul talks about the dead being the first fruits, or Christ being the first fruits, I'm sorry, it's coming from an Old Testament practice that God had given to Israel. There was a harvest of grain, the first fruits of the harvest. They were to take the first part of the harvest and bring it to God as a sacrifice. The first fruits mean there are others to follow. So Christ came from the dead. He's the first to come from the dead to die no more. He's not the first to come from the dead. There's others came from the dead. Lazarus was raised. Others came from the dead in relation to Christ. But he's the first to come from the dead to die no more. He's the first fruits. So what happens? There's others to follow. A couple weeks ago, Stood at the graveside for the <clears throat> burial of Bonnie Farrell. That was in hope. That was an expectation. Because Christ had come from the dead. Others are going to follow. This week, my Grigo. Body placed in the ground. With a hope and expectation, Christ the first fruits came. Others are going to follow. Paul says, But Christ came from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, physical death. For since death came through a man, that is through Adam, all die. We're all an atom. We all die. Physically, we all die. But it doesn't stop there. So in Christ, all will be made alive. There is a resurrection of Christ. In this context, he's dealing with believers. Believers being raised. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. He goes on in the passage. Not only in Adam do all die, Verse 23, but in each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. So we're anticipating sometime in the future when Christ returns, believers in Christ are going to be raised. Bodily raised. To be with the Lord for an eternity. Verse 24, then the end will come. That is when he Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, tied in with the demonic world, Satan and his demons. After he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, 
for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Think about the world in which we live. We're confronted over and over again with the world of evil spirits. We're confronted over and over again with Satan. You know, he is alive and well, but he has been defeated, but his ultimate defeat is in the future. The demonic world is at work. And then we deal with death. Every day, if you look in the newspaper, you'll find someone has died. But Paul says, because of the resurrection, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. That is, God has put everything under Christ. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The resurrection is critical. The bodily resurrection of Christ is critical. The bodily resurrection of humans is critical. And in verses 29 through 34... Paul emphasizes a couple of things. If there's no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead, or what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And I realize there may be a couple interpretations on being baptized for the dead. My take, my understanding after studying the passage is that Belief in Christ many times causes death. You know, people die because of their testimony for Christ. Maybe not so much in our country, but in many countries. We know the 11 would have died because of their faith in Christ. So as people die, what happens? The more you kill Christians for their faith, the more people respond. Being baptized for the dead is not trying to do something for those who have died Someone being baptized for them as much as this half of the church dies this week. And there's 50 others come to faith in Christ and want to be baptized because they want to take a stand. They want to identify with those who have died for Christ. That would be my take on those who have been baptized for the dead. In verse 30, what should we, or why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. If you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul talks about what he went through as he lived for God as he ministered. You know, shipwreck, in danger from robbers, in danger at the sea, and so on. I die every day, you know. He faced it every day. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for mere human reasons, what have I gained? And again, I'm conviction of the conviction as you study wild beasts, Along with Acts, he's talking about human beings in Ephesus 
who were out to kill him, who were out to get him. Why would I fight them? Why would I deal with human opposition if there's no resurrection? If the dead are not raised, if there's nothing in the future, he says, let us eat and drink, or tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of Christ, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That is a quote from Isaiah. It's a quote from people at that point in time that were not believing in a future judgment. They were living only for the present. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, there is a resurrection of the dead. There is a, the, Christ has already come from the dead. So bring that back to the present. Don't merely eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Live in the present in light of the future resurrection. And then he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. If you're not going to believe correctly, you're not going to believe correctly about the resurrection. You're not going to believe correctly about the resurrection of Christ or the resurrection of believers. You're going to hang with bad people that have incorrect beliefs. That's going to corrupt your character. It's going to influence the way you live. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Then Paul goes on to explain the resurrection body. What we believe makes a difference in how we live. Theology, if you want to say, is vital. It is important. And Paul argues very strongly for the resurrection of the dead. Thus the resurrection of Christ. (coughs) Thus, a godly life in the present. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be separated from the bodily resurrection of believers. Correct doctrine, correct beliefs influence very, very strongly how we live. A couple simple questions. Are you confident your body will be raised in the future? Reunited with your soul and spirit and you will be with the Lord. Are you confident of that? Are you confident of a relationship with God through Christ? How is your future resurrection influencing your daily life? Two accounts. About six months ago, Ruth Ann and I stopped to see Bonnie Farrell. She was staying with Tom and Dee. 
And it was, you know, just briefly after she had found out that she was not going to live long. They gave her two to four months. She lived beyond the four months. And I generally like to bring up the issue of death when I talk to people, you know, who are going to die. Why not talk about it? It's going to come. It's inevitable. Let's talk about it. Let's not hide it. I brought up some things to her. You're ready to die, Bonnie. You know, what's your thinking? You know, you're going to live a long time. You're not going to live a long time. You know, we don't know, but you're ready to die. And, you know, she gave very, very strong testimony. I'm ready to die. She said, I don't know when. You know, I'll fight, but I don't know how long. And she said something very interesting. I know in the future, my body will be raised. There's an eternity with the Lord. And I said, Bonnie, die well. I think she did. Thursday morning, went to the viewing of Mark Grigo, Mark, Mike, I'm sorry, Mark, Mike, Mike Grigo. There's a desk in the front. One of the guys said, you know what, why the desk is here? I said, no, if I would have went and looked, you know, they had an explanation. Open Bible with some notes, apparently preparing for a Sunday school class. But died. But his future hope influenced him in the present. Just prior to dying, preparing to minister to someone else. And he was one of those who came from High Point Baptist to pray with our board and myself, I think it was back in December or maybe early January, in light of what we're going through at the present time as a church. I don't remember all of his prayer, but his future hope influenced his passion for people. And he is one of the guys that I didn't see real often. But he had some very encouraging words every time I saw him. That was because of a future hope. Do you have that future hope? Let's pray together. Father, We reflect in the resurrection, the fact that Christ did come from the dead to die no more. That means we have a hope in the future to come from the dead to die no more. In Adam, we die in Christ, there is life. We're grateful for that. Father, we want to find encouragement in what you say in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Spur us on, build us up as we strive to walk faithfully with you. We know we struggle, we have trials in this life. But the resurrection of Christ provides life in the present that we can work, we can go to school, we can respond in our families, we can be shoppers, drivers, and so on that bring glory to you. Thank you for the time of worship this morning. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.